calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Mystery Theater presents... This is Christopher Lee, the host of Mystery Theater. Audiences matter. Laughter, applause, without the desired response. Performances often fail. In radio, the audience may not be present, but it remains crucial, perhaps even more so. Radio relies heavily on audience participation and the audience's ability to visualize. Some characters require little by way of imagination. Holmes, for example, as in Sherlock, what do you see? A deerstalker hat, a calabash pipe, and a gaunt, intense face. The profile of literature's greatest detective. We'll join Holmes for another adventure, followed by an eerie train ride with the mysterious traveler, and finally a modern-day detective in This Is Your FBI. It all begins in just a moment. Welcome back to Mystery Theatre. I'm your host, Christopher Lee. Time for The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring John Stanley and Alfred Shirley in The Cadaver in the Roman Toga. the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. Our stories are based upon the character of Sherlock Holmes, created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes is portrayed by John Stanley, Dr. Watson by Alfred Shirley, and the dramatizations are by Edith Miser. Once again, we find ourselves in front of Dr. Watson's crackling fire. Uh, just a moment, Mr. Harris, just a moment. Shall I put on a, a fresh pine knot so our listeners can really hear it? Yeah, that's the ticket. Now, go ahead, Mr. Harris. Outside, a cold white autumn mist shrouds the black tree skeletons. 
But inside, we sit warm and cozy and ready for another of Dr. Watson's fabulous Sherlock Holmes adventures. What's it to be tonight, sir? Your conversation of white shrouds and skeletons brings to mind one of the most bizarre problems we ever undertook to solve. It came dash close to being our final problem, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Sounds promising, Doctor. Nothing I like better than hearing about Holmes in a tight spot. And whenever our adversary proved to be the notorious Professor Moriarty, it was generally a very tight spot. Professor Moriarty? Wasn't he the man Holmes referred to as the Napoleon of crime? The same. Actually, this case began when Sir George Westbrook discovered a corpse dressed in a Roman senator's toga, tunic, and sandals. Holmes always maintained he could deduce a man's entire history from his wardrobe. But uh, this <coughs> time... He... <coughs> Doctor... Speaking of judging people by their clothes, I thought oh, I... Bless my soul. Yes, of course. I almost forgot. Let's have a few words from our sponsor, who is also an authority on the subject of gentlemen's apparel. Uh, may I say, Dr. Watson, that most people, like Mr. Holmes, do judge people by their appearance. That's mighty important in connection with Clippercraft clothes. Because you'd never guess Clippercraft costs so little. Such low prices for such truly fine quality are rare, to say the least. Clippercraft suits are yours for only $35 and $40, with a few special numbers at $43.75. Top coats and overcoats are only $30 to $40, and sport jackets $24. These are planned values, the result of the Clippercraft plan concentrating the buying power of 924 leading stores across the country, resulting in tremendous savings in manufacturing and distribution costs. Remember, all this is yours in your own local independent store where friendly attention is traditionally yours. Want to convince yourself? It's as easy as a visit to your Clippercraft dealers. Just compare Clippercraft with clothes selling for many dollars more. And now, Dr. Watson, to get back to the gentleman in the Roman toga. All right, Mr. Harrisman. It all began on a freezing winter morning. My first view of Baker Street presented a dispiriting glimpse of icy sleet falling between the dun-colored houses. I donned my carpet slippers, my oldest trousers, and a well-worn bathrobe with the firm intent of enjoying a placid breakfast and settling myself in front of the fire for the rest of the day. I no sooner opened our sitting room door, however, when I caught sight of Holmes tramping about wearing to himself and tossing a shiny golden coin into the air. Confounded if I could only lay hands on the villain. Uh, morning, Holmes. What seems to be the difficulty today? Hmm? Difficulty? Moriarty is back in business. Only this morning, Mrs. Hudson received this coin. Here, have a look at it. Hmm, a handsome gold sovereign. Flooding the town with them. Great Scott, don't tell me Professor Moriarty, the greatest criminal in Europe, has turned philanthropist. No such luck. That coin, Watson, is counterfeit. A brilliant job, more's the pity. Only an expert can spot it. No wonder Moriarty's been so quiet these last two months. It takes time to develop a coin as perfect as this. Well, at least he hasn't had time for murder, arson, or any more of his serious crimes. Serious? You think flooding the country with counterfeit coins isn't serious, Watson? Do you realize what this will do to the value of the pound? By Jove, of course. Uh, Holmes, that's our doorbell. Tell Mrs. Hudson I'm not at home. But Holmes... I'm not accepting any tuppenny halfpenny cases. Not while Moriarty is threatening the credit of the Empire with his fraudulent gold pieces. Come in, come in. Uh, I, 
Which of you gentlemen is Sherlock Holmes? And my friend over there has the honor. Whatever it is, I'm busy. Oh, but this is terribly, terribly important, so I... I don't know what to do. He's dead, you see. Dead men do not interest me. Uh, couldn't you uh, inform his relatives? Well, that's just it. I don't know who they are. I, I, I don't even know who he is. I, I don't even know when he died. Albert, he's my assistant, says it must have been over a thousand years ago, but that seems quite impossible. There's not the slightest sign of decomposition. Oh? On the other hand, and until Albert and I broke through this morning, no one had been in that room for centuries. Uh, what room? Uh, the Roman baths. I, I discovered them, you know. The bricks are undoubtedly ancient Roman. Even the cadaver was clad in a senator's toga. And, and genuine, I assure you. We found him there in one corner. Now, let's get this straight. You found a fresh corpse dressed in a Roman toga in some Roman ruins that have been buried for centuries. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Watson, what are you waiting for? Bring the gentleman a chair. But uh, you said you were busy. Don't be irrelevant. This sounds interesting. Oh, uh, very well. But, uh, won't you uh, sit here, Mr. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I... I'm afraid I forgot to introduce myself. Here, here. Here's my card. Read it for me, Watson. Sir George Westbrook, President L and W A Association. That means London and Wessex Archaeological Association. Of course, of course. I remember hearing the Corporation of London had engaged you to investigate some ancient Roman remains which you discovered in the Billingsgate section. That's right, Mr. Holmes. They're under the basement of the Coal Exchange in Lower Thames Street. Albert and I have been burrowing away down there for over a month. This morning, we broke through the final bit of brickwork and emerged into a large subterranean chamber. All right, Albert. I think the opening's big enough. Yeah, give me the lantern. I'll go through first. Yes, sir. Why, Sir George, your hand is shaking. <laughs> Is it any wonder? <laughs> I'm excited, Albert. Unless I'm very much mistaken, we've unearthed some baths that were built by the early Romans. <laughs> yes, well, come along. Careful. Don't, don't tear your clothing. I say, sir. It is a biggish room, isn't it? Splendid, Albert. Splendid. Look at that ceiling, will you? In almost perfect condition. Hello, what's that in the corner over there? Hmm? Looks like a heap of white cloth. No, no, the, there's a, a leg sticking out of it. Good Lord, it's a body. We'd best have a look at it, sir. Yes, but be careful. Don't, don't touch it. Don't touch anything. What's that white thing he's got on? Why, it's a toga, Albert. A Roman toga. It's sopping wet, sir. If you ask me, he's been drowned. <laughs> You say drowned, Sir George? That's right, Mr. Holmes. No, but that's impossible. There hasn't been any water in those baths for over a thousand years. Interesting. Very interesting. Tell me, Sir George, mm. what was the condition of the air in that chamber when you broke in? Stale, vitiated? No, Mr. Holmes, it, uh, it was quite fresh. That's curious now that I think of it, because there was no other entrance to the room except the one we'd come through. The doorway to the rest of the baths was filled by a, a great heap of bricks and rubble. You were unable to identify the corpse. As a matter of fact, we uh, didn't do any further investigating. Albert was quite overcome by the sight of the body. <laughs> I'm afraid he's never been very strong about such things since the time that mummy disintegrated in his arms while we were working on those pre-Hellenic excavations in Crete. Hmm. I sent him home and came straight here to consult you. You mean you left no one behind to guard the body? 
No, Mr. Holmes. What? Where's my hat? Where's my coat? Watson, don't just stand there. There's no time to lose. I suppose I should have informed the authorities, Mr. Holmes, that the thought of all those stupid Scotland Yard inspectors trampling around in my beautiful ruins like a herd of elephants. I left a couple of dark lanterns burning. Oh, yes, here they are, in this packing case. All right, now, follow me, gentlemen. Why do basements have to be so damp and depressing? Careful there, careful. This is, this is where we started to dig. It's a rather rough tunnel slanting downward. You'll have to bend over, I'm afraid. You're sure that the, this earth won't cave in on us? No, I don't think so, unless, of course, someone should give it a tremendous push of some sort. Ah, here's where we broke through the wall. Well, you'll be interested in this, Mr. Holmes. Notice the masonry. Yes. Yes, the bricks are undoubtedly Roman. Let's see, they measure... Nine and a half inches long by four and a half inches broad and only one and three quarter inches thick. Not unlike those of the Roman bars at Rochester. Except that there the tiles are a mere one and a half inches thick and measure 16 inches by 12. Oh, really, Holmes, did we come here to discuss bricks or inspect a body? Never neglect an opportunity to increase your store of knowledge, Watson. Oh, and stuff my brain with a lot of useless tittle-tattle, not me. Here's the hole we made in the wall, Mr. Holmes. It's not very large, I'm afraid. Well... I'll go through first and light the way. Now, gentlemen, if you'll follow me... I'll go next, and you can bring up the rear, Watson, with the other lantern. Now then, Watson, alley Don't be in such a rush. Here, take the lantern. It's a tight squeeze, you know. I... Hello, I think I'm stuck. If you'll pull his other arm, Sir George. Right. Oh, <sighs> You're glad to get out of that. I told you you should go on a diet, Watson. Oh, just because you're satisfied to look like a walking skeleton, you were... Hello, this is a gloomy-looking spot. More like a tomb than the sort of place one thinks of as an elegant Roman bathing establishment. Yes, it certainly is more like a tomb at present, complete with the remains of the deceased. Although how he was able to insinuate himself into this chamber... Yes, I... quite. A superficial survey of the walls and ceilings certainly shows no signs of any recent entry except by way of the hole through which we just dragged Watson. Interesting, very interesting. Yes, suppose we view the body we came to investigate. Yes, he's over here, Mr. Holmes, against the south wall. Oh, watch your step. The flooring here is a bit uneven. Here he is, exactly as we found him, lying on his face with one arm stretched over his head. Say, a uh, skinny old boy, wasn't he? I say, these robes or whatever it is he's wearing, they are sopping wet. Yes, the poor fellow was undoubtedly drowned. Lungs still full of water. Extremities icy, rigor well advanced. He's been dead six to eight hours, I should say. Holmes, how about it? Not necessarily. The floor he's lying on is extremely cold, also the air. Of course, the really fantastic part of the whole picture is the man's raiment. That tunic and the toga with the wide purple stripe. Even the thorned sandals are the authentic garments of an early Roman senator. So I see, so I see. Whoever this person was, he was thoroughly at home among Roman customs and manners. That ring of office on his outstretched hand is undoubtedly authentic. Oh, look here, Holmes. You, you don't actually believe this is a, a genuine Roman senator who got himself drowned in this room and managed somehow to stay in this state of preservation? No, Watson. There are several obvious flaws to that theory. In the first place, although the costume is authentic in line, cut and drape, the wooden fabric of this toga was woven not on an ancient handloom, but by a modern machine. Second, the liquid in which the gentleman was drowned would have evaporated in a short time, even in very stale air. 
And third, this room is neither the frigidarium, which was the cold plunge, nor the caldarium, which was the warm. No, judging by the recessed benches built into the walls, this room was the suratorium, or what the Romans called the vapor bath. But of course, Mr. Holmes. Why didn't I think of that? But good Lord, then, then how was he drowned? And why? Uh, suppose we turn the victim over, Sir George. His identity may give us the answer to those questions. Right-o. Easy. By Jove, he, he looks even more Roman from this side. That nose, those hawk-like features, like some rapacious old Caesar on a Roman coin. Rather accurate and appropriate description, my dear Watson. Yes, this, unless I'm very much mistaken, is Brutus Octavius Bainbridge, the world's greatest numismatologist. You mean the coin expert? But of course... I thought the old fellow looked familiar. Well, I've heard he often wore Roman dress when he was lounging about at home. Oh, so that part of our mystery is a perfectly normal explanation. Don't be too disappointed, Sir George. There are several other little questions to be cleared up, the answers to which may be rather more exciting than you anticipate. Well, what do you mean, Holmes? Well, for one thing, Mr. Bainbridge disappeared very suddenly from his home one night a little over two months ago. About a fortnight later, the British Isles began to be flooded by an extraordinarily clever counterfeit sovereign. By Jove. I pointed out to Scotland Yard that there might possibly be a connection between the two events. You mean Mr. Bainbridge was a, a counterfeiter? I mean, as the greatest living authority on coins and coinage, he was undoubtedly kidnapped by a band of unusually daring counterfeiters and forced to assist them in their work. I thought you might possibly come to that conclusion, Mr. Holmes. Great Scott, that voice. Where does it come from? Over a hidden speaking tube of some sort, I imagine. But who is it? Unless I'm very much mistaken, that voice belongs to my arch adversary. Greetings, Professor Moriarty. So now you've taken up counterfeiting. Have I destroyed so many of your activities that you're running short of funds? I've warned you repeatedly, Holmes, that you were getting to be a nuisance. Surely you must have realized how dangerous that can be. But, my dear Professor, surely you must realize that danger is the breath of life to me. <laughs> this time, Holmes, you've overreached yourself. On the contrary, Moriarty, it's you who have gone too far. <clears throat> Watson, get Sir George out of here. I'll keep talking to give you a chance to escape. Was it necessary to kill Bainbridge after you'd finished picking his brains? Not necessary, my dear Holmes, but expedient. We drowned him. I wonder if Dr. Watson can guess why. Well, dashed if I can. Why not shot or strangle? I say, what's all this about, Holmes? Get out of here, you idiot. Well, I leave you in danger, I should say not. You see, Dr. Watson, drowning would serve two purposes. It would eliminate Mr. Bainbridge, and it would provide a tasty for Mr. Sherlock Holmes. What do you mean? I knew he'd never turn down an invitation involving a corpse in a toga ostensibly drowned in an ancient Roman bath. Watson, if you have no regard for your own safety, at least have the intelligence to get Sir George out of here. I'm dashed if I understand what's going on here. <laughs> you will, Sir George, you will. Sorry to have to execute you too, but I'm afraid you signed your own death warrant when you sent for Mr. Sherlock Holmes instead of Scotland Yard. <laughs> I rather thought you would, you know. Ah, well, this is what comes of associating with anyone who is foolish enough to think he can outwit Professor Moriarty. 
Look here, you old blunderbuss. You needn't think you can bully rag Sherlock Holmes or me either. No. Great Scott, what's that? I rather imagine one of the good professor's hirelings has blown up the entrance to Sir George's tunnel. What? You, you mean we're buried alive in this sepulchre? Mm -hmm. Just like Aida and her young man. Isn't it romantic? You might try singing yourself to death as they did. Such a waste of time, I always thought. What a pity Mr. Bainbridge won't be able to join you. You'd have made such a jolly quartet. <laughs> well, that's torrid, eh, Holmes? Looks as though we're entombed in this blasted place until Sir George's assistant turns up tomorrow morning and finds the tunnel caved in. Tomorrow, my dear Watson, is Sunday, and the day after, a bank holiday. Better blow out one of the lanterns and save it for later. But this is terrible, Mr. Holmes. Well, we'll, we'll be asphyxiated by the time Albert arrives on Tuesday. I doubt it, Sir George. There's a very definite movement of air, fresh air, icy fresh air. If you'll wet a finger and hold it up, you'll notice what amounts to a slight breeze. No, I doubt that we shall die from any lack of oxygen. We may very well perish, however, from cold and exposure. Doesn't take long to freeze to death in this temperature. Oh, you needn't be so confounded cheerful about it, Holmes. Don't interrupt, Watson. As I was saying, we may very well expire unless we can discover how Mr. Bainbridge's body was brought into this room. What good will that do? Any passageway large enough to permit the entrance of this corpse will also serve as an exit for Sir George and myself. You, Watson, may have a bit of trouble. Oh, you go to blazes. But, Mr. Holmes, what passageway could there be? As you know, the architecture of the ancient Roman baths was fairly identical. There was obviously only one doorway into this bath, and that's blocked by a great fall of earth and bricks. Quite. But aren't you forgetting, Sir George, the small, unseen, tube-like passage that invariably ran under all the rooms except the coal plunge? Of course. The hypocost. Oh, what in thunder is a hypocost? A smallish tunnel lined with red paving squares, which ran from a furnace outside the buildings under all the principal rooms of a Roman bath. If we can discover some loose tiling in this floor, we may thank the ancient Romans for inventing what our poor, retarded civilization considers a modern improvement, namely central heating. Discouraging. I've dug up two dozen spots. Cheer up, Watson. At least the activities kept you from freezing to death. Yes, it's ruined my trousers. Good thing I was wearing my old suit. I say, the light's getting dimmer. Holmes, the second lantern is about burnt out. Keep digging, Watson. It's our only chance. I say, Mr. Holmes, uh, could you come over here a minute? I think I've found a sort of grating under this last batch of bricks. Good Lord, let's see. Yes. Yes, we found it. Watson, help me with these bricks. Okay. There. Watson, bring the lantern. Right here. Here they are. Now then, let's see. There's black down there, isn't it? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Sir George. We are now in the vapor room. The blocked-up entrance over there leads to the hot bath. That would put the cold plunge on our left. No good going in that direction. When we go down into the tunnel, we should turn right to get out. Quite correct, Mr. Holmes. I'll go first. Give me the lantern, Watson. It's flickering, Holmes. It's gone out. Very well, then. We'll have to crawl our way out in the dark. My 
feel as if I'd been crawling like a snake for hours. Stop complaining, Watson. At least we're not sealed up in that vault. Well, maybe not, but I can't say this is any great improvement. Oh, I don't ask to stand upright. If I could only get to my hands and knees for a moment. There's a shallow pool of water here. How jolly. I could use a bath, only I'd just as soon not have ice water, you know. Save your breath. How are you getting along, Sir George? I'll, I'll manage. <gasps> now what? Something ran over my hand. Probably a sewer rat. Delightful. Maybe we could take it home for a pet. Quiet, Watson. I think we've reached the end of the tunnel. Yes, it opens out. You mean I can finally get up off my stomach? Yes, give me your hand. Oh, I think my back is permanently bent. Hello, there are some steps here. Steps going up. And the door at the top. It's open a slit. Yeah, there's a light. Well, there must be another entrance at ground level. Yes. Follow me and be very quiet. Better have your revolver handy, Watson. This may well be the most dangerous part of the entire adventure. Easy now. Let's have a look through the crack before we open the door. It's a large, bare-looking place. Then what's all that machinery? Those are melting furnaces, presses, weighing apparatus, rolling machines. And on the far side are the acid and water baths in which Bainbridge was undoubtedly drowned. In short, you see before you a very complete mint for the coining of counterfeit money. Mr. Holmes, who's that sinister-looking man stepping out of the shadows? There, there, look. He's adjusting a jeweler's magnifying glass in one eye. Now he's... he's hunched over a pile of golden coins. Good Lord. His head oscillates from side to side like a snake. Enjoying the fruits of your labor, Moriarty? You! Holmes! You didn't expect us to return your call quite so promptly, eh, Professor? Don't bother to reach for that acid. Watson has you covered. Better put your hands up. That's right. Now, you'll come around that table. Slowly. That's right. I have a little present for you. A pair of bracelets that... Ah! Holmes, he's going through the window! Shoot, Watson, shoot, confound it! I can't! Why not? Well, blast it all, you asked me out of the house in such a dither this morning, I forgot to slip my revolver into my overcoat pocket. <laughs> Don't look so crestfallen, Watson. I'm rather relieved we didn't get the handcuffs on the professor. Once he's safely behind bars, I'll have no opponent worthy of my talents. I should probably die of sheer boredom. You mean sheer conceit? Now, Dr. Watson, about the epilogue to the adventure of the corpse in the Roman toga. Well, the officers of the Royal Mint tendered Holmes and myself a dinner in recognition of our invaluable services in breaking up a counterfeiting outfit which had threatened the value of British currency. Holmes received a large illuminated scroll and a, a sizable check. Always acceptable, eh, Dr. Watson? <laughs> yes, quite so. I was presented with a priceless Roman ring of office which we had found on the dead man's finger, and a magnificent copy of Vitruvius de Architectura. On the flyleaf in Holmes' handwriting was the inscription, One never knows what bit of useless tittle-tattle may save a man's life. The chapter on the hypercost was underlined. Got you that time. And now, Dr. Watson, I wonder if you'd like to give us a hint about next week's story. Well, next week, I think I'll tell you how Holmes and I found a man shot under a smashed streetlight. All the evidence pointed in one direction, but the victim had been shot at point-blank range and there was only one wound, but we heard two shots. Oh, Holmes always referred to it as the case of the well-staged murder. Murder.
Sherlock Holmes is produced and directed by Basil Lochran, with special music by Albert Berman. That's John Stanley and Alfred Shirley in The Cadaver in the Roman Toga on Sherlock Holmes from November the 9th, 1947. Have your tickets ready. The Mysterious Traveler is next. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Christopher Lee welcoming you back to Mystery Theater. Now Maurice Tarplin stars as the mysterious traveler in I Won't Die Alone. Mutual presents The Mysterious Traveler. This is The Mysterious Traveler, inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, and it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable if you can. As you hear the story I call, I Won't Die Alone. Our story begins in 1931. Two young men are speeding along in a car on a lonely West Virginia road at 70 miles an hour. There's a tight, tense look on the face of the driver, Steve Martin, as he takes the curves on the road without slowing down. His companion, Chuck Williams, wipes the perspiration from his face with trembling hands. He turns and watches the road behind fearfully, now and then glancing at Steve's face for reassurance. Turn on the radio, Chuck. Let's see if they got an alarm out yet. Yeah, okay. Well, what do you think our chances are, Steve? Hard to say. All depends on how fast the cops spread the word. The two men robbed the Third National Bank of Lewisburg of over a quarter of a million dollars shortly before closing time. Word has just been received that the two bank robbers are now driving east on Highway 6B towards the Allegheny Mountains. That's not good. 
State Police Car 9, take up position at junction of Highway 11A and River Road. They're moving fast. State Police Car 10, take up position at junction of Highway 3 and Highway 6B. Steve, Highway 6B, we're on it. Yeah. That is all. Stand by for further orders. Steve, you got to turn back. We're headed for a trap. Take it easy, will you? There's still a chance. 20 miles ahead, there's a small dirt road that'll detour us right around them. 20 miles? We'll never make it, Steve. Isn't there any other road we can turn off on? No. Are you sure? I was born in these parts. I know every inch of the country. Steve, let's ditch the car and cut towards the mountains on foot. Are you crazy? It's 40 miles to the mountains. We'd never make it walking. We've got to keep driving. It's our only chance. We'll run right into that trap, I tell you. They'll be waiting with Tommy guns. We'll be dead pigeons. Okay, then we'll be dead pigeons. I'd give up my share of haul right now to be out of this. You gotta get me out of this, Steve. You gotta. No, shut up. Look, Steve. If you were to let me out of the car and keep on going yourself, I might be able to get away. The cops would be so busy chasing you, I'd be able to give them the slip. You lousy rat. Now, look at it my way, Steve. There ain't no use both are getting caught. That don't make sense. You're great when it comes to sharing the dough, but when the heat's on, you want out. Yeah, but, but uh, I'm willing to pay for it. Uh, you can keep my share of the bank on. Now, that's fair enough, ain't it? Huh? A lot of good that don't do me if I get caught, but I'm sick of hearing you whine. All right, it's a deal. If I get through, the dough's all mine. If I don't, well, I don't. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. I'll never forget this. Come on, get out. Uh, which, uh, which way do I go, Steve? Head across the fields until you hit a small stream. Then head upstream for about six miles. There's a railroad water tower there. You ought to be able to hop a freight. Thanks, Steve. Well, I'll be seeing you. Yeah. So long, Chuck. Yeah. Now, let me see that paper. It says here they caught him yesterday afternoon at 5. An hour after I left him. But you do run out on him? No, I didn't run out on him. I just played it smart. What are you looking at me like that for? There wasn't no sense in both of being caught, was there? No, I guess not. Where's the dough? What dough? The 254 grand you got in the bank job. Steve had the dough. What? Look what it says there in the paper. Huh? Go ahead, read it. Martin, when captured, told police he knew nothing about the stolen bank money. Police believe that Martin's unknown companion escaped with the loot. But I didn't fly, didn't. Did he have that, though, when I left him? Then why didn't the police find it when they caught him? There's only one answer. Steve stopped and hid the dough someplace before they got him. Yeah, that must be it. Steve's too smart to risk being caught and having all that dough taken away from him. Poor guy. They'll probably throw the book at him. Where have you been so long? Well, what happened at the trial? They give him 25 years. 25 years? Mm -hmm. uh, how, how, how did he take it? He didn't bat an eye. Maybe he'll think things over and squeal on Oh, me. stop sniffling, will you? He isn't the kind of a guy to do anything like that. Yeah, sure. Why should he want to squeal on me? Besides, if he did, the cops would find out that I didn't have the bank, though. That it's Steve who got it. He wouldn't want that to happen. Sure. Why, with good behavior, he'll be out in 18 or 19 years. 
And you'll have all that dull head. I'd rather have the 18 or 19 years, not dull. Well, it's been nice knowing you, Chuck. Wait a minute, Flo, don't go. What? Why not stick around? We'd make a good team. We don't need Steve. We don't, huh? And just what would I get sticking around? You haven't got brain, muscle, or dough. What's the attraction? Listen, Flo, stick with me and I'll get dough. I've always gotten what I wanted in the end. Without Steve, you haven't got a chance. He had all the brains, all the guts. Yeah, and what did it get him? You notice I ain't behind bars. And I'll get that big dough yet. Three cheers. When you do, look me up. Seventeen years passed. Seventeen years in which earth-shaking events took place. With the passing of time... Steve Martin became just a memory to Chuck Williams and Flo Duval. During the 30s, Chuck struggled desperately to make money in a half dozen petty rackets, but failed miserably. However, with the coming of the war, his luck changed, and in the years that followed, he thrived on the black market. And with his newfound wealth, he was able to win Flo Duval. 1948 found Chuck Williams a happy, prosperous citizen without a care in the world. How many times have I told you to knock before you come into this office? Look, Napoleon, save that big shot stuff for your stooges. <laughs> Same old flow. <laughs> I guess that's what I like about you, baby. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, you've got that superior look on your face again. Who are you planning a knife now? I just got word that our old pal Steve is getting out of prison tomorrow. Steve Martin? The one and only. It's been 17 years now. It's a long time. Yeah. I think I'll drive down to the prison. Be there when Steve gets out. What for? You haven't bothered to write or visit him since the day he was sent up? I know. But uh, it's a matter of unfinished business between the two of us. Unfinished business? Yeah. To be exact, 254 grand. You mean you're going after that dough that Steve has stashed away? That's just what I mean. But you gave up your share of that bank dough the day you and Steve separated. Man can always change his mind. Chuck, leave Steve alone. That money by rights is his. He paid 17 years for it. Besides, you don't need it. You got more dough than that already. Maybe so, but that isn't going to stop me from getting that 254 grand. And you ought to know by this time I always get what I go after. I got you, didn't I, baby, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Remember, baby, when those gates open and Steve comes out, let me do the talk. Don't worry, I will. I don't want any part of this business. Relax, baby, relax. When I get that 254 G's, I'll buy you a fancy diamond bracelet. Then you'll feel better. Hey, boss, they're opening the gate. Is that him? No. Steve's twice as big as that guy. Chuck, that is Steve. Can't be. That guy looks at least six. You're right. It is Steve. Stay in the car. Hey, Steve. Steve, over here. What's the matter? Don't you remember an old pal? Oh, Chuck. Well, I... I didn't recognize you at first. Well, in here, pal. Yeah. I, I guess I'm kind of surprised to see you after all these years. Well, I've been living in South America most of the time. Only got back a year ago. I know I should have written you, but... Uh, I never was any good at that. 
Boy, yeah, sure smells better out here. Come on, come on, let's get in my car. I got a surprise for you. Huh? Surprise? Yeah. You remember Flo Duval, don't you? Well, there she is. Hello, Steve. Hello, Flo. Hey, it's nice seeing you again. <laughs> come on, Steve, get in. We're driving you to town. Thanks, Chuck. Okay, Felix, back to town. Right, boss. You don't look well, Steve. Uh, it's just this prison parlor, Flo, and 17 years. Well, it's all behind you now, Steve. A few weeks of good rest and good food. You'll be a new man. I'd like to believe that. Just take my word for it. I'm never wrong. <laughs> well, you seem to have done all right, Chuck. Yeah, not bad. I own a nightclub, a bowling alley, used car business, a couple of apartment houses. I can't complain. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I'm not forgetting an old pal either. Now, Flo and me want you to come and stay with us until you get on your feet. You know, a house guest. Uh, I'd rather not, Chuck. I don't want to put you out. Put me out? Ha! <laughs> Listen to the guy. Well, we got sweet servants, everything. Steve, I just won't take no for an answer. A week passed, then two weeks, during which Steve Martin did little other than eat and sleep and take long walks. Chuck Williams played the role of the gracious host to perfection, and his guest lacked Nothing in the way of comfort. So concerned was Chuck with his guest's welfare that he always knew exactly where Steve was and uh, what he was doing. Then one day, as Chuck had known it would happen, Steve came into his office for a private chat. Are you busy, Chuck? No, no. Have a seat, Steve. Thanks. What's on your mind? Well, uh, while I was doing time, my old man died and left me a small farm in West Virginia. That's where I was born and raised, you know. Yeah, I remember you telling me. Well, uh, I'm going back to the old farmhouse and settle down there for a while. I see. Well, anything you say, Steve. Only let's keep in touch, huh? Yeah, sure thing, Chuck. When are you thinking of leaving? Tomorrow morning. Well, that's soon, huh? Well, we'll have to have a little farewell party tonight, okay? Yeah, fine. I'll see you later. Right you are. Felix, come in here. What's up, boss? My pal, Steve, getting ready to make his move. Guess he can't wait no longer to get his hands on that dough. Looks that way. He's leaving tomorrow morning for a small farm he's got in West Virginia. West Virginia, huh? Yeah. The farmhouse can't be more than 30 or 40 miles from where he stashed the dough. Is there any chance he might have hidden it on the farm? Nah. Cops caught him before he got that far. He hid that dough someplace off Highway 6B. How many of the boys you want me to take along? Take four. I don't want any slip-ups. Watch him day and night, and without being seen. Just leave it to me. Sooner or later, he'll lead you to the dough. When he does, well, you know what to do. Yeah. Okay, then. You better start packing. More from the mysterious traveler after this.
Hi, I'm Carl Amari. If you enjoy classic radio shows like The Shadow, Jack Benny, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, The Whistler, and Abbott and Costello, consider joining the Classic Radio Club. Each month, members receive 10 of the greatest classic radio shows of all time. As curator, the 10 shows I select will be the best sound quality and the most popular, along with a rare show sprinkled in to add to the fun. I'll also send you historical liner notes, plus photos of the radio stars. Members also receive an email each week with a link to the full five-hour Hollywood 360 radio show. The links never expire, so you can listen to Hollywood 360 whenever you'd like. The first month membership fee is only $1, with each additional month under $10. And you can cancel at any time with no obligation. By joining the Classic Radio Club, you're supporting this show, so we thank you very much. Join the Classic Radio Club at ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. Now, back to The Mysterious Traveller. The next morning, when Steve Martin took a train for West Virginia, two very inconspicuous men were seated at the other end of the coach he was riding in. They watched him get off the train at an all but deserted station in West Virginia but made no move to follow him. As the train started off, Steve hired a car to take him to the farm he'd inherited. It was dusk when he finally reached the deserted farmhouse. On a heavily wooded hill a hundred yards away, Felix and a companion watched through field glasses as Steve lit a fire in the farmhouse and prepared to settle down for the night. In the days and nights that followed, Felix and his men took turns watching Steve Martin's every action. And every evening, Felix would phone Chuck Williams and report that Steve hadn't made a move as yet. How many times have I told you to knock before coming into this office? What's the matter, Napoleon? Aren't things working out? I've told you to lay off that Napoleon stuff. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. It must be Felix. Hello? Hello, boss. Felix. Well, what's happening? Nothing. He still hasn't made a move. All he does is fish and read. What about visitors? He hasn't seen anyone since the day he got here. Are you sure he didn't give me the slip during the night and get the dough? Not a chance. I got two boys watching the house at night. Well, maybe he knows he's being watched, and that's why he hasn't tried anything. I bet my last buck he hasn't spotted us. Uh, nothing ever goes right unless I'm running the show. I'm leaving tonight for West Virginia. I'll see you in the morning. Okay, boss. I'll be expecting you. It's a farmhouse down there, boss. Look through the field glasses. You can see it just like you were standing in the front yard. Sitting on the porch, reading. Yeah, reading and fishing is all he does. He hasn't been more than a couple of hundred yards away from the house since he got here. Well, he must have spotted you. That must be the reason he hasn't made a move. How could he have spotted us? You can see how careful we've been. Well, I'll wait a couple more days. See what happens. If he doesn't move soon, I'll have to think of something else. Leaving Felix to continue his watch over the farmhouse, Chuck returned to the village and registered at the village inn. The hours that followed dragged interminably, and the hatred that Chuck felt for Steve Martin grew with each passing hour. In the evening, Felix drove into the village and reported that nothing new had occurred. Four more fruitless days went by. Chuck Williams was unable to contain his fury any longer. 
He got into his car and drove to within a half mile of the farmhouse, then walked the rest of the way to where Felix and his men were hidden on the hill. Boss, what are you doing here? I got tired of waiting. You better get down, boss, or Steve Martin's liable to spot you. Forget that. We're through playing a waiting game. We're going to move in on him. Move in on him? Yeah. Maybe after a light workout, my pal Steve will be willing to tell me where he stashed the dough. Ah, that sounds more like it. I never did go for this cat and mouse game. Before we're through with him, he'll be begging to tell us what he knows. Steve, I'd loan some for you. Decided to pay your call. I thought you'd get around to it sooner or later. You don't sound very glad to see me. It's a fine way to act towards a pal who was your host for the last three weeks. Didn't I treat you right? Yeah. That's what made me figure I hadn't seen the last of you. What do you want? I'll give you one guess. I haven't got it. I know you haven't, but you know where it is. So what? That money belongs to me, not you. That's where you're wrong, pal. That dough belongs to the guy strong enough to get it. That's me. Okay, then you go ahead and get it. Should I let him have it, boss? That's not up to me, Felix. That's up to Steve. Well, pal, you gonna dig up that dough for me? No. You're not as smart as you used to be. You know I'll get what I want in the end. I wouldn't count on it. Okay, Felix, I guess it's up to you and Slim now. Don't talk. Won't you, pal? <laughs> That's it, pal. Uh, try getting on your feet. Here, let me help you. How is he, Felix? It's out cold, boss. If we give him any more, he's liable to kick off. Sure? Yeah. He's already got a couple of busted ribs, and that beating around the head didn't help him. We got to make him talk. We got to. You have to figure out some other way. Throw some water in his face. Okay. Come too, boss. Wrap him up in a chair. Come on, you. There. Steve, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Felix here wants to try the water treatment. Water treatment? Yeah. Now, why don't you play it smart and tell me where you hid that dough? Won't talk, huh? Okay, Felix. Wait, wait, I'll talk. Well, it's more like it. Where is it? You could never find it. Alone. Uh, I'll have to take you to it. Just you and me. What's the matter with Felix coming along? Just you and me. Okay, pal, okay. Only I'm wondering if you're in condition to make it. Hey, Felix. Yeah, boys. Give him a few drinks, try to fix him up. Right. As soon as you've done that, Steve and me will be on our way. An hour later, Steve, with the assistance of Felix, tottered to Chuck Williams' car and got in the front seat. Chuck slid behind the wheel and started the motor. As he drove off, he waved to Felix triumphantly. In a few minutes, the farmhouse had faded from view. Steve, huddled in a corner of the front seat, fought to keep from crying out every time the car hit a rut in the road. Now and then, he opened his pain-filled eyes to look out the window. Chuck watched him with satisfaction as he drove. How much farther is it? You drive about five miles until you reach a small gravel road where you'll see a big sign saying the Devil's Caverns. You turn right there and go two miles. The Devil's Caverns? What are they? They're a big tourist attraction in these parts during the summer. 
Hundreds of huge underground caverns that run for miles in all directions. You mean that's where you stashed the dough? Yeah. The best place in the world. How do you know you'll be able to find it again? I know every inch of the caverns. When I was a kid, my old man worked as a tourist guide there. I learned my way around from him. Okay. But you better find that dough. I'm warning you. I'll find it. Well, you should be reaching the gravel road in a couple of minutes. Turn right, then it's two miles to the Devil's Caverns. This is it. Park the car in that shed over there. Place sure looks deserted. Well, no one ever comes here until June. Is that the entrance to the caverns, that door set in the rock? Yeah. You'll have to shoot the lock off the door. Is this okay? Yeah. No one will ever be able to spot the car here. Thought you said no one comes here until June. No one does. I take chances. We'll need a flashlight. I got one. Come out this way. If you're thinking of any tricks, don't. Remember, I got this gun, and you're in no condition to try anything. Yeah, you, you saw to that. How come you didn't hide out here when the cops were after you? Well, there wasn't any place to hide the car. Shed wasn't here 17 years ago. Tough. Never saw such a lonely-looking place. Yeah. Well, you ought to be able to blow this padlock off at one shot. You better stand over there. Yeah, that does it. How much further is it? Seems like we've been walking an hour already. It's right up ahead. Sure you can find your way out again? All these cabins look alike to me. Yeah, I know the way out. Sure it's damp in here. Hey, what was that? Oh, probably just a rat running past you. Place is full of them. Seems to me it's taken a long time to find that place where you hid the dough. If you're trying anything, I'll... Here's where it is. I'll hold the flashlight a little higher. That's it. I hid the suitcase behind this rock. Got it? No, not yet. Here it is. Yeah, that's it. That's it, all right. I can still recognize it. Open it up. Well, there's the dough. Yeah. Still in the bank wrappers. Look at it. Over a quarter of a million bucks. <laughs> look at the money. Go ahead, look at it. I'm looking. What about it? Yeah, you're looking, mastermind, but you don't see. All those bills are goldbacks. Goldbacks? Yeah, that's right. In 1933, the government called in all goldbacks. That's how the kidnapper, Bruno Hoffman, got caught. Trying to pass goldbacks after the government had called him in. You mean that dough is no good? That's just what I mean. You try passing any of that dough and you'll end up doing time. You've known all along that dough was no good? Ever since 1933. Knowing it was worthless, I never intended coming here for it. But you may... I gotta let you have it, you rat, for leading me on like this. Well, why don't you? Come on, pick up that suitcase. Let's get out of here. Oh, uh, wait a minute. I forgot to tell you, Chuck. Tell me what? I'm staying here. You're staying here? Yeah. That's right. Now, look, I've had enough out of you. I start leading the way out. I guess you didn't understand. I said I'm staying here. Get gone or you'll get it right between the eyes. That doesn't scare me. You see, Chuck, there was something else I didn't tell you. I didn't get out of prison on good behavior. I got out because the doctor said I was going to die in three months. You're going to die in three months? Yeah, that's right. 
I thought I'd die peacefully on my farm. Only you wouldn't let me do that. So I've decided to die here with you as company. Thief, you can't do that. You can't do that, Steve. You gotta get me out of here. You gotta. I don't have to do anything I don't want to. But get me out of here, Steve. I'll make it worth your while. I got dough. I got lots of dough. It's too bad you won't be able to take it with you. Steve, I'll give you 100 Gs. 200 Gs if you get me out of here. It's not gonna be tough for me to die because I only got three months anyway. But I'm gonna enjoy watching you. You're going to get weaker and weaker as you plead with me to lead you out of no. here. Then you're going to get desperate and try to find a way out by yourself. But you'll never make it. You'll go wandering from one cabin to another, and then in the end, you'll probably wander back here to find me dead. And your flashlight's going to go out. Huh? You'll be all alone in the dark with the rats and the bats. Oh, stop it! Stop it, Russia! And if you go weaker, the rats are going to close in on you before you know it. Thief. I didn't mean it. Well, you made me. Steve, say something. Gotta get out of here. Gotta get out of here. Help! Help! Mysterious traveler again. Did you enjoy our little trip? What happened to Chuck Williams? Oh, the poor fellow was found dead a month later when the cabins were opened for the summer tourist trade. Seems Chuck had wandered from cabin to cabin without being able to find his way out. Evidently, he'd gone mad in his last hours, for he was found with his pockets stuffed full of bills. Uh, gold backs. Now, I recall another case in which two ghosts came face to face, only to discover that... Oh, you have to get off now. I'm sorry. But I'm sure we'll meet again. I take this same train every week at this time. You have just heard The Mysterious Traveler, a series of dramas of the strange and terrifying. In the cast were Maurice Tarplin, Joe Julian, Art Carney, Elspeth Eric, and Alan Manson. Original music was played by Paul Taubman. The Mysterious Traveler is written, produced, and directed by Robert J. Arthur and David Cogan. That's The Mysterious Traveler in I Won't Die Alone from May the 11th, 1948. In a moment... A true crime case from This Is Your FBI. Welcome back to Mystery Theatre. I'm your host, Christopher Lee. Now Stacey Harris stars in Espionage on This Is Your FBI. This is your FBI. This is your FBI, an official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, 
presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. To your FBI, you look for national security, and to the Equitable Society for financial security. These two great institutions are dedicated to the protection of you, your home, and your country. Tonight, the story of a crime against our nation, espionage. Nineteen thirty-nine. That year, the continent of Europe already echoed the cries of people under aggression. On the continent of Asia, far beyond our western shores, was Japan, a dedicated nation, a dedicated people, dedicated to war upon the United States. But we did not know this yet. Within our western gates were more Japs, thousands of them. Were they dedicated to being good American citizens, or were there among them? some dedicated to our destruction. Here was a vital task for the FBI. The safety and security of America might depend on what they found out. A Sunday afternoon in 1939, two FBI agents from the San Francisco office stood on a pier at the San Francisco waterfront watching a Japanese cruiser warp into the dock. How big would you figure that crowd, Jim? Oh, I'd say... Uh... Oh, at least a thousand. Pretty excited for Japs, aren't they? Well, this is a big day for them, Larry. Doesn't often they get a chance to pay their respects to a big shot from Japan. I know. Larry, is this Prince Suji a member of the royal family? Yes. They sure are giving him the Sunday bows, all right. Funny how they conform to that caste system of theirs. That first line that shook hands with the prince were all top bracket boys. I know, I've checked them off. Japanese consul general, head of the... Jap Association, leaders of the prefectural groups. Second line is a middle bracket bunch, bankers, nip businessmen. All they got from the good prince was a nod. Well, that's more than the small fry are getting now. Those housewives and farmers. They bow, and the prince doesn't even acknowledge their presence. Hey. Hmm? Look at that bull-necked little man in the chauffeur's uniform. What about him? You notice something? He's not cringing or bowing. He's standing in line with his head up and shoulders back like a soldier. Oh, yes. Hey, did you see that? Yes. The prince bowed to him. I know. I don't like that, Jim. They don't play it that way in their league. Princes don't go around bowing to chauffeurs. Unless our chauffeur is a big shot back in Japan. Yes. That's something you and I better check on. One Jap bowing to another Jap. A pair of striped pants and cutaway coat bowing to a chauffeur's uniform. The two FBI agents, troubled by what they saw, investigated and learned the chauffeur's name and background. Then they took their information to the agent in charge of the San Francisco office of the FBI. That's the story, Mr. Walker. A prince bowing to a chauffeur. That is unusual. Yes. Did you follow this man? Yes, sir. He lives at the Osaka Hotel. His name? Yasu Kajioka. Did you learn anything about his work? Yes, he drives a big Cadillac. He owns it. He runs some sort of escort service with headquarters at the hotel. Anything else on him? We found out that he's been a very active worker for many of the local Japanese associations. Well, I think we should do a thorough check on Mr. Kajioka's activities. Won't be too easy. We could use some help. From whom? Someone of his own race. A Japanese who is loyal to us. Well, we might try the university. They have quite a few Japanese-American students there. That's a good idea. 
Suppose I arrange with the dean of studies out there for you to have a talk with him. Fine. I'll get him on the phone right now. The two FBI agents spent almost an entire day with the dean of studies at the university. They pored over the personal records of many Japanese-American students. And finally narrowed down their choice to one man. A student by the name of Tom Tanaka. His record showed he lived in the same neighborhood as the Jap chauffeur. Gentlemen, have you reached a decision? Yes, sir. This man, Tom Tanaka, looks good to us. Well, I think you've made an excellent choice. He lives in the same neighborhood as the man we want watched. If he measures up in other ways, that's a definite plus. I understand. You realize, sir, how important it is to us that we be able to trust this boy implicitly? Yes, I do. We've got to know if he's loyal. If he's a real American at heart. If he thinks and acts like an American. There are thousands of men and women who live here on the West Coast, Mr. Schuyler, who look Japanese and are the sons and daughters of Japanese. But I know them as true Americans. They're as loyal as any of us whose ancestors were German, English, French, Irish, or whatever. I say that this boy is an American just as you or I. Good. Can we meet him at once? Tom, I imagine your dean has told you that we're special agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yes, sir. He has. We've selected you, son, from the list of the entire enrollment of Japanese Americans here at the university. As a student? No. No, as an American. Well, what about it? I am an American. We believe you are, in every sense of the word. Has somebody been talking about me? No. No. Then what's this all about, sir? Tom, we want you to help us. How? In a very important, perhaps very dangerous way. You... You want me to work with the FBI? Yes. Do you know a man called Kajioka? Yasu Kajioka? Why, yes, we're neighbors. I helped him compose letters in English. Several times. Good. What, do you remember you? I think so. He said once that he might give me a job doing secretarial work in my spare time. Why do you ask me about Kajoka? We need a loyal Japanese-American like yourself to help us investigate this man. We want to know if he is connected with any un-American activities. Hmm. What do you want me to do? Help us to get information. Tom, all we want are facts. I see. You said that you, you know Kajioka. That he offered you a job once. We want you to go to him. Take the job. We're giving you the opportunity to do this as an American, Tom. Well, what would I say to Kajoka? How would I ask for the job? You'd tell him that you're in need of money to finish your studies. If he hired you, you'd undertake at once to impress him with your love of Japan and the Japanese. We don't want you to put your life in danger. You'd be cautious, never inquisitive. What do you say, son? I'll do it. No. What do you want, young man? I want to talk to you, Mr. Kajoka. Oh, uh, what about, please? A job. Why? To earn some money. Why do you come to me, lowly chauffeur, if you need money? You told me someday you might give me a job. Oh, yes. Why you want to earn money? To keep up my studies. You got father, mother. I don't want to ask them. So... But you ask lowly chauffeur, why? Everyone says good things of Kajoka. Oh, oh, good. You hear perhaps I visit cruiser. They say Kajoka was greatly honored. Oh, so, they say correctly. Uh, please, you sit down. Thank you. Now, 
how you think. What do you mean? It could be important for me to know. I think Japanese. Oh, so. And what are those thoughts, please? I love my people. I love Japan. So, I think maybe you lie. Why should I? Who can read my thoughts? Oh, very, very good. Yes. Will you give me a job? Yes. You work for me now. Come every day. I'll try to read your thoughts. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yes. Once the all-important inside contact had been made, many FBI agents took up the trail. They learned that Kajioka always drove Japs who were easily identified as high-ranking naval officers on vacation. They learned that he was the head of a secret Jap organization on the West Coast, the Hamushikai, boasting over 10,000 members, all eligible for military service in Japan. The society masked itself as a charitable one, Charity in the sense that thousands and thousands of dollars were drafted from the members and sent back to Japan. Why? The answer came quickly and dramatically. One night on a street corner, young Tom Tanaka reported to the special agents of the FBI. Tom. Tom. Yes, sir. Here we are. I haven't much time, sir. I've got to get back. What have you got, sir? Something big is cooking. There's a great meeting called in the basement of the Japanese high school for tonight. Kajoka will make an appeal to get more funds to send back to Japan. I see. Also, they are to show preparedness movies sent over from Japan. Are you supposed to attend this meeting? Yes. Kajoka will expect it. Tom. Yes, sir. We need a list of the members in that organization. Practically everything depends on our getting it. Do you think you could go to the meeting, get the list, and get away alive? Yes. The pictures may go on about 8 o'clock. I'll try and sneak out and meet you here then. Good boy. Good luck. We'll be waiting. Nineteen thirty-nine. In that year, there wasn't even a slight buzzing in our ears to warn us that enemy planes were warming up for an attack. There was nothing in the word protocol to make us think of anything but where the wife of some ambassador might have to sit at some state dinner. Yet two men of the FBI standing on a dock at San Francisco had seen in a bit of Jap protocol enough to make their blood run cold. Enough to make them, on their own initiative as Americans, set up a series of patient, exhaustive, dangerous investigations which inched down 1939 through 1940 and brought them on the evening of February 3rd, 1941, to stand tense in a darkened hallway near a high school in the Jap section of San Francisco. Watch it, Jim. Don't let that streetlight hit you. I've counted about 2,000 have gone into that meeting so far. Still coming. Kajioka, sure must have passed the word along. Looks like the meeting is getting started. Somebody coming along to see the channel. Pull back here. Tom. Tom. Here. Oh, Hello. We've got a wonderful break. Kajoka forgot to bring the records. He wants me to go to his house and get them and bring them to the meeting. What part of the meeting is on now? They're going to run off the movie. How long will that take? Until about 9.15. Good. I'll go with you, get the records, bring them to the FBI office. We'll have them photographed and back in your hands by 9 o'clock. Can you do it that soon? We've got to. Jim. Yes? You stay here. Call the office. Tell them what we have to do. Ask for the entire staff to stand by. Right. I'll drive Tom over. It's going to be tight going. I know. But this is the first break we've gotten, and it may be the only one. Let's go. Nineteen thirty-nine. 
While the movies whip the Japanese audience up with blatant pictures of Japan's armed might, while distinguished visitors sat rigidly straight in the front rows, their cropped heads marking them high officers of the Emperor's army and navy, while almost 3,000 sons of Nippon shared a new sense of oneness, of dedication to emperor and country, an alerted FBI office, brilliant with lights, crowded with 100% staff, worked feverishly to photograph the secret documents and make the deadline. I don't think we can wait any longer, Mr. Logan. It's 8.54. I know. I've got to be back to the hall before the lights are turned up. We'll make it. One minute to deadline. How are you coming? Two more sheets. The others are finished. Come on, then. Hurry it up. Please, you've got to give me the originals. I can't wait. The movie ends at 9.15. Let's start correlating pages in the original. You know how they go, Tom? Yes, sir. I'll grab them as fast as I finish. Number two is finished. Come on, snap up on number three machine. Please, hurry. Hold an elevator. Right. Here you are. This is the final. Thanks. We'll put them together in the car. It's 8.55. Let's go. We'll just make it. Mr. Kajoka. Where have you been? It took you a long time to get papers. I stood in the back of the hall to see the pictures. I thrilled with the people. Oh, uh, give me the records. Here you are, sir. Good. I have news. We have received orders to change names of all branch chapters of our organization, and we must at once seem to stop our activities. Why? Why? Because soon, glorious Japan will win honor or downfall, and we are ordered to prepare for duty as soldiers behind the guns. <laughs> The FBI had everything it needed now on Brother Kajioka. Its position as head of the secret society. His activities as chauffeur deluxe for visiting Japanese officers. His role as collector extraordinary of funds for the Japanese war machine. His devious role as espionage agent. Everything the FBI needed except the right to go out and arrest him. Under our way of government, we do not go about arresting citizens of friendly nations. The FBI could watch and wait. And to add insult to injury while it fretted over its watching and waiting, one of the FBI agents had reason to phone into the agent in charge of the San Francisco Bureau. Yes? Mr. Logan. Yes, Larry. Jim and I have been following Kajioka. Yes? We followed him from the Osaka Hotel. He drove straight to Sutter Street. Yeah? Parked his car, proceeded on foot to 111 Sutter Street. Why, well, that's our building here. I know. Well, where did Kajioka go? He's in your foyer, waiting to see you. He's what? Well, thanks, Larry. Bye. Yes? I'm Mr. Kajioka to see you, sir. Send Mr. Kajioka right in. Mr. Walker? Yes. What can I do for you? I am Kajioka. Sit down, Kajioka. Now, uh, what do you want to see me about? I come to FBI because I am honorable man. I see. I wish to offer my services to the United States. Why? I hate Japanese. Oh? Tell me about it. I was born in Japan. One time in Japan, they arrested my father. He was a good man, harmed nobody. They say he was disloyal, but they have no proof, and it is a lie. What happened to him? I never see him again. They murder my father. And so you hate Japanese? Oh, yes, very much. I would be good agent for FBI. What makes you think so? Japanese government tried to get me to work against United States. You know how it is. 
You have information on certain secret Japanese organizations here. No? A little. Oh, that is too bad. With me, you get to know much. I know all Japanese tricks. I make valuable agents. Perhaps you would, Mr. Kajoka. You think about it. And remember, I want to work for United States. Great country. I work for FBI and kill many Japs. Well, we're not interested in killing Japs nor anyone else. Sometimes it will be necessary. Then you tell Kajioka what to do, where to go. And he goes. Well, thank you very much for your offer, Mr. Kajioka. We'll take it under consideration and we'll let you know in due time. Thank you. So much. Not at all. It will be a pleasure. Mr. Kajioka might have smelled a rat. That is, if a rat can smell himself. But his surprising offer was politely refused. And his intensified wanderings by day and night were as equally matched by the more intensified watching by the many electricians and workmen, laundrymen, truck drivers, cabmen, innocent motorists who sent in their reports under the names of special agents of the FBI. Still, all they could do was watch. Watch and follow the little man who was dedicated, like his country, to the destruction of America. Then came December 7th, 1941. On that fateful day, the entire staff of the FBI was gathered in tense silence in each of the Bureau's offices. In San Francisco, even the local law enforcement officers were present, waiting. Waiting. Everyone here? Everyone, sir. Larry, you and Jim can stand by and watch the teletype. Right, sir. The names are coming in from Washington. Names and addresses of enemy aliens to be picked up when the word comes through. We'll take them. I know a name you two will want to watch for. Yes, sir. Thank you. Getting into the caves now? Yeah. Hello? Yes, sir. Right. That's the word. Get going. K is in Kajioka. K is in Kajioka. Come on, teletype. There it is. Capital K for Kajioka, the little rat. We got him now. Come on. What's all? Now you see who I am. Major Kajioka. How do I look in my uniform, Pop? Very well, sir. No more lowly chauffeur. Glorious Japan has stuck. American fleet. No more. Pearl Harbor. No more. All gone. Soon planes come. Then transport. Yes. I have two revolvers. See? Oiled and loaded. I give you one. Soon our soldiers march in the streets. And you and I will go out and kill every dirty American we see. Yes? Yes. Yes. You watch at the window. Tell me when you see planes. Tell me when you see glorious soldiers of our brave army. Ah, I will pour drink for ceremonial toll. Yes, sir. I'll keep watch. Ah, soon I will be colonel. Then general. Wait until you see how they will reward me for what I've done. Ah, I will be big man. Yes, of course. I hear plain. Do you see them yet? Not yet. Listen. Our soldiers are coming. I drink to glorious Japan. They are here. Come in. Banzai! Come on, Katioka. Ha! 
Uncle Sam wants to see you about a place called Pearl Harbor. Kajioka was rounded up with thousands of his kind. Rounded up with the aid of a loyal Japanese-American. Like the rest, Kajioka wondered how the FBI had known of his work. Does he remember that little incident back in 1939 when a pair of striped pants and a cutaway coat bowed to a chauffeur's uniform on the hard deck of a Japanese cruiser? Probably not. He wouldn't understand the things that make Americans tick. The American willingness of those who serve our country in the ranks of the FBI. No, Kajioka probably will never understand until it's too late. And how will he ever know that it was too late that day back in 1939? As an enemy alien, Yasu Kajioka was placed in an internment camp to remain there for the duration of the war with Japan. The incidents used in tonight's broadcast are taken from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. Programs in this series of particular interest to servicemen and women are broadcast overseas through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Tonight, Kajioka was played by Ted Osborne. The music was under the direction of Van Cleave. The author was Frank Wilson. And your narrator was Frank Lovejoy. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. Now this is Carl Frank speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time for this is your FBI. This is the American Broadcasting Company. That's This Is Your FBI with Espionage from July the 20th, 1945. In a moment, I'll tell you what's coming up on the next Mystery Theater. Be sure to join me next time on Mystery Theater when we'll hear Alfred Hitchcock and Joseph Cotton bring us Spellbound on the Screen Director's Playhouse. Then it's Chapter 9 of City of the Dead on Adventures by Morse. This is your host, Christopher Lee, saying thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Mystery Theatre with your host, Christopher Lee. The producers of Mystery Theatre wish to thank this station and Radio Spirits for helping make this series possible. This copyrighted radio series is written by Dennis Etchison, Jim McCants speaking.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.